Does your organization need valuable guidance in creating a more equitable and welcoming environment? If the answer to that question is yes, then lean on the expertise of Tyranny Thurman, equity consultant and founder of IDAL2 Counseling and Consulting, a diversity and inclusion firm with a focus on assisting organizations by facilitating dialogue to help shift perspectives and empower leaders to dismantle systems of oppression and work towards equity. So head over to www.idaltucc.com for more information. Hey, everybody. I'm Alicia, and welcome to the Medicine and Color podcast, a platform where I highlight the voices of men and women of color in all aspects of medicine and elevate their stories for the world to hear. Let's get to it. Hey, y'all, and welcome to a new episode of the Medicine in Color podcast. If this is your first time listening, I am Alicia. I'm a third-year medical student in Philadelphia, and I'm a native of Savannah, Georgia. Prior to entering medical school, I had a wealth of amazing experiences, ranging from working in the Obama White House to working for a youth health and wellness organization in New York City, and then teaching at my undergraduate institution, Savannah State. Um, So why medicine in color? This platform has a foundational goal of elevating the stories of women and men of color in medicine while providing a source of inspiration for the next generation of leaders along the way. So this is your first time listening. I want to say thank you for tuning in. If you are a consistent listener, thank you for coming back. Um, So as I mentioned, I am currently in my third year of medical school, and this month I am on my OB-GYN rotation Third year is essentially, um, I liken it to speed dating, uh, road, speed dating of specialties. So every month I'm in a different specialty. Um, last week was my first week and I was on the GYN service, which was, service, which was cool. I got to spend a good amount of time in the OR, observing procedures and learning about the processes and the behind the scenes things and why they do certain procedures, um, and which was a really great learning experience. So this week I am on... OB service, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, I have never seen a live uh, birth, live delivery. Um, so I'm really looking forward to OB this week. So um, on to today's guest. I am really excited about this conversation. Around this time last year, if you listen to the podcast, I attended Harvard's residency showcase, which is sponsored by their Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Partnerships. And for me, that weekend was a peek into what was what is possible. Um, it was a reminder that my possibilities are indeed limitless. I don't know where I will go for residency, but what I do know is that there are no boundaries on what is available to me. And so I hope that everyone listening feels that way. And regardless of where you're from, your process to now, if you're like me, I've had a long journey to getting into medical school Um, rest in the belief that the possibilities of your future are limitless. Do the work, um, make the connections, and work hard to whatever it is the goal that you seek. So this is one of my first, this is my first one-on-one interview since April when I chatted with Minda Hartz. If you have not listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. Um, It was a really great episode. So I'm excited to get back into the groove of one-on-one interviews. So enough about that. On to my 
guest for today. Today's guest is Dr. Alden Landry. He is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, assistant dean for the Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Partnerships, the associate director and advisor for the William B. Castle Society, and the director of health equity education at Harvard Medical School. He is also the founder and co-director of the nonprofit organization, Moving Pathways. Dr. Landry received his Bachelor of Science degree from Prairie View A&M University, one time for the HBCU grads listener, in 2002, and his medical degree from the University of Alabama Birmingham School of Medicine in 2006. He completed his residency in emergency medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in 2009, in 2010, he earned his Master of Public Health degree from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and completed the Commonwealth Fund Fellowship in Minority Health Policy at Harvard University. This conversation, we talked about everything from his HBCU experience and how that shaped him into who he is now, his squad, how, his medical, how medical students can use their passions to make positive change, and some advice for fourth years currently applying to residency in this very unconventional residency process. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Alden M. Landry. Enjoy. Uh, so Dr. Landry, thank you for joining the podcast. Um, so my first question to you is what do you do and why? Thank you, Alicia, for having me. I'm excited to uh, have a chance to speak to your audience. So thank you for the invitation. Mm -hmm. So what do I do and why? I think that's a pretty broad question. Um, so uh, maybe we could parse that out and I can tell you a little bit about my um, different titles and what that actually means. So I'm an emergency medicine physician by training. Um, and so the question is, what do you do? I take care of all people who present to the emergency department. Um, and why do I do it? Uh, it's because I love the specialty. It's one of those places where you get to interact with people of all backgrounds, um, regardless of their SES, regardless of their education level, regardless of their income, um, regardless of what their medical condition is, they come to the emergency department and I get to take care of people um, oftentimes in their, uh, at their lowest, at their sickest, um, when they're the most scared. And I love um, the ability to interact with people uh, in that perspective. One of the ways I would describe emergency medicine, um, have you ever seen the movie Fight Club? Um, oh, I don't think so. I'm showing, I'm, sh I'm showing my age by, by referencing <laughs> Fight Club, um, but it's a movie and, and one of the ways that he describes having interactions with people on the airplane um, is like having single serving friends, right? And so everybody talks about emergency medicine. Oh, you don't get the continuity of care um, with patients. You don't get to see people over time. And I say, yeah, but we get single serving friends in the emergency department. You meet somebody, you get to take care of them. You get to be a part of this intense um, experience with them, uh, whether it is they sprained their ankle because they were playing pickup basketball or, or they're having an MI because they were going for a run trying to get healthy uh, in the time of COVID. Um, and so you get to have this intense experience with them and you know, talk with them through their diagnosis, care for them. And then of course they transition off into the hands of other people, but you at least got to be involved in their care. So I do emergency medicine. Yeah. Um, along with that, um, I have a couple of uh, other hats and we don't need to get into all the nitty gritty details, but I'm the assistant dean for diversity, inclusion and community partnership at Harvard Medical School. And it is in this space that I get to do something that I'm truly passionate about from 
an academic standpoint, which is um, help people as they uh, think about the work that they're doing related to equity and social justice, and then also to promote workforce diversity. Uh, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, based on the questions that um, typically get asked to me when I tell people uh, about that job title. Uh, I also have some other roles. I do some advising at the medical school uh, here at Harvard Medical School uh, and do some work around the health equity education that's part of the curriculum for the medical students. Uh, and then the last hat I guess I'll share with you is that I, I am the uh, 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 co-founder and co-director of the Tour for Diversity in Medicine, which is a nonprofit organization um, that allows me to do some similar work to what I do at Harvard Medical School, which is uh, promote careers in the health professions to uh, those individuals underrepresented in medicine. And we originally started with medicine and dentistry, um, but we've expanded to all specialties uh, with those terminal degrees um, and even expanded our program now to help students who are in their undergraduate medical education go on to pursue the residency training that they're interested in. Uh, so we're not just helping people get into medical school or dental school or pharmacy school, but helping them get out and make that next step in their transition on their path to becoming the type of healthcare professional that they wanted to be. Nice, nice. You wear all the hats. <laughs> uh, I, wear, I wear a few. I wear a few. <laughs> you have all the all the roles, and so let's backtrack. Let's talk about how you got here. Um, okay. What your process has been like. So, uh, the the premise of the podcast is to provide insight into the stories of um, men and women of color in medicine, and so talk about your journey and how you got to now. Sure. Um, so. You know, I was one of those uh, precocious kids who said at the, you know, third or fourth grade that they wanted to be a doctor and really didn't waver from that very much. Um, I originally said I wanted to be a veterinarian, and that was because my grandfather, um, both of my grandfathers actually had cattle. Um, I'm from uh, East Texas, uh, and uh, part of being a Texas, uh, being from Texas is like owning land and having cows, right? And so that, that is, that is uh, that's part of uh, sort of the Texas brand. And so um, I remember one day having a conversation with one of my grandfathers and he said, you know, the smartest doctors out there are veterinarians because they can't communicate with their patients, but they can still take care of them. And that sort of stuck with me. And I was like, I'm gonna be a veterinarian. Um, as a side, I also wanted to be uh, number 34 for the Chicago Bears, which is, uh, <laughs> Walter Payton, but that part of my, uh, my journey didn't work out too well for me. Um, but uh, it was probably around high school that I really transitioned to saying I wanted to be a, a doctor of, uh, of medicine, a physician. Um, and um, it was, you know, by God's grace, it was by, you know, right place, right time. It was by good mentorship uh, that I ended up going to uh, Prairie View A&M University, small HBCU right back outside of um, outside of Houston. And um, it was there that sort of things just catapulted for me. Uh, and this um, sort of interest in medicine really, Scott, you know, just, um, you know, it, it went into hyperdrive and uh, led me to where I am today. Yeah, good deal. Good deal. So you mentioned that you are an HBCU graduate. I'm, I'm a proud HBCU graduate too. Um, Represent. My, my entire family. There's a, my brothers, one of them went to Morehouse and the other went to FAMU. And they think that they went to the greatest institution of course side of heaven and every every yeah. every hbcu graduate does so there's always um battle in our home everybody we've got everybody represented same yeah. uh, state fort valley famu claflin morehouse everyone yeah. um, and so talk about your hbcu experience and how that like kind of added value to your career as a physician and even beyond that 
yeah. Uh, so I 100% agree with uh, you know your family sentiments about them all going to the the best HBCU. They did. They you know obviously Prairie View is the right answer when it comes to that. <laughs> um, but I think I think there's something to be said about that sense of pride about our institutions of of higher learning, right? Um, because we recognize the value that those institutions have um, have given us, uh, and that they the way they've sewn into um, our our success and help cultivate us as as uh, as future as current leaders, future leaders, and what the value is to those institutions in our communities. And I think it's really unfortunate. And this is very much an aside from um, your question you just asked um, how HBCUs have been devalued over time. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I think. Uh, for those of us who've gone to HBCUs, um, a lot of us have had overwhelmingly positive experiences, and I think it's um, a testament to what those institutions can do uh, for Black people in this country when it comes to helping us grow and mature and find ourselves in this space um, that often is not accepting of us um, in, in higher education and, and, and in this world, frankly, in our, in our society, frankly. Um, but being at Prairie View, for me, was um, re- really instrumental because there was a program called um, PCI, uh, Pre-Medical Concepts Institute, and it was uh, something that was the brainchild of uh, Dr. George Brown. And for anybody who went to Prairie View who was a biology major or took a biology course, you know Dr. George Brown, right? He is that guy. He is the one who, um, he was the department chair, he was the pre-med advisor, he was the one that brought everybody in and cultivated folks. He was the one pushing us to, you know, do summer programs like, um, it's now SHPEP, Summer Health Professions Education Program, but it's had a bunch of other different names. Uh, he was the one encouraging us to you know, apply and do research at NIH. He was the one that was really helping us to keep on track. And so when I say that I'm a product of, H, of an HBCU, I'm a product of Prairie View, I'm also a product of Dr. George Brown, right? And I think every HBCU uh, has someone akin to that. Every, every HBCU, in, in regardless of the major, whether you're an engineering or a computer science major or an architect major, HBCUs have these individuals who are just like the pillars of those institutions. And so I had that experience in Dr. Brown and at Prairie View in the, in the biology department. But one of the other things that being at Prairie View gave me was uh, a sense of community, right? Uh, I started off at an HBCU and I wanted to be a doctor. And I was, for that time, around other people who looked like me, who had same similar lived experiences as me, who had similar values, um, like the same music, the same culture, all that other stuff, but they also wanted to be doctors. And there's something to be said about strength in numbers, right? Because I had my squad, I had my people that I knew were going to be one studying with me, but then also two kicking it with me when it was time to go to the party. And so you had people who were keeping you on task for both the studying and keeping you on task to make sure that you enjoyed yourself. And so my college experience, I would not trade a single day of it because um, it really shaped me to, to who I am. I still have a group me with all my homeboys from college. Um, there are a couple of us are doctors, some of us are not, um, but we're all still very close and tight knit. Um, and those are just those experiences that you get by coming uh, to HBCU. I know so many doctors and dentists and pharmacists and optometrists um, and nurses who came out of that cohort that I started with at Prairie View or who were there while I was there in that, that time that I was there because there was that culture. You came to Prairie View. Everybody thought it was a party school, right? Um, and we did our fair share of partying, but we also took care of business. And the, I know so many doctors who came out of that institution who were there at that same time that I was. So 
it's a really great experience for me. And, um, and you know, if I can't sing the praises of, of, of my college experience and, and, and the role that the Prairie View has played in sort of my, my, me becoming who I am uh, now. And then that's where I discovered that I really wanted to work on uh, diversity efforts and, uh, and, and diversity. And now we're calling it diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Um, but it was during that time at Prairie View that I recognized that this was something that I found value and wanted to base part of my career on. Um, and then it was also where I learned how to, you know, learn about leadership skills and learned uh, uh, professionalism skills and uh, learned uh, uh, about the value of networking and all these other sort of soft skills that you don't think about coming from college. Yeah, I got a great college education. Um, yes, I was put in a position to succeed academically, but it was all those soft skills that I learned at Prairie View um, that I may have learned at another institution, but chances are I may not have because the culture and the environment at Prairie View was there to cultivate students, um, not just in the books, but also in, in life and in society. Yeah, you said so much that I, I certainly agree with. I, even looking back on my HBC experience, I, I too wouldn't trade it for anything. Mm -hmm. um, we were t we were groomed in a way that one we had an opportunity where we could maybe make mistakes but also in an environment that loved us yep. um, and we cultivated lifelong relationships and I like that you mentioned this we were taught that you can do both and you can be yep. an extraordinary student and you can have a um, a good social life like you can have a network of, of, of friends and have fun outside of mm -hmm. academics and um, even on, on our campus on Wednesdays, we were dressed for success days. So you would yep. look across the campus no, ma no matter where you went and students are in suits and, and yep. um, business attire. And we yep. were taught that that was a foundation for us. So we were taught how to prepare when we go outside of the walls of our campus. Mm -hmm. and I, I, even now, looking back on it, I just appreciate it so much. Um, and some of my lifelong friends that I've known, you know, since freshman or sophomore year, we're still friends now. We travel together. We, you know, talk to each other very often. And so, yeah, the value of the HBCU experience, it's, it's home. It is yep. what, you know, prepares us to catapult into the world. So I'm so grateful for it too. Um, you mentioned your squad though. So talk about your squad. What does that look like for, um, you know, for all that you've achieved? What is, what does your squad look like right now? Well, my squad right now is my wife. 14 or four kids that's squad right that's yeah, uh yeah. that's 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 what my squad is um um and you know i mentioned earlier that i wanted to be a veterinarian and my son um has pajamas that are scrubs and he wants to be uh, a doctor too but he wants to be a pet doctor he doesn't want to do the work that daddy does he wants to be mm -hmm. a pet doctor and um i think at uh one of my I have twin girls who, um, they're three. Uh, one of them wants to be a purple dinosaur and the other one wants to be a doctor as well. Um, so we'll see what they end up turning out to be. I don't know, the purple dinosaur is a little bit of a stretch, but who knows uh, You know what, what she can accomplish. Anything is um, possible. Anything's possible, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, my, you know, so I have my, my nucleus, right? My, my, my wife is a researcher. She does uh, precision medic, um, precision medicine and um and genetics uh work um but with life you obviously transition and you have uh different lived experiences but that's my squad uh if you were to ask me what my squad is um but my squad is also those folks that i met back in um 
in college uh, who I still keep in contact with, uh, my friends from medical school that I still keep in contact with. I never say my folks from high school because like I, I remember thinking, oh, you know, high school, you know, we're going to keep in touch. We'll be friends forever. Man, I keep in touch with maybe three people from high school, right? Because, uh, you know, life just takes you in different places. And I'm, you know, uh, although I'm from Texas, Army Brad went to high school in Virginia. Um, I don't, you know, keep in contact with a lot of folks. Not that they're not good people. It's just life is taking me in different directions. And, you know, I'll occasionally log on to Facebook and see what crazy antics are up to. And that's about, about the extent of it. Um, but that nucleus of folks that I met back in college, I mean, we're, we were all deep. I can pull up the uh, text messages and we, you know, we're talking about everything from the protests related to the murders of black men by the police to, you know, what's happening with the NBA season to, you know, talk and smack about each other's barbecue. Right. Um, and it's great to have that network. I, I have my colleagues that, you know, I went to, to, to college with, but then I also have a friend of mine who, uh, who's in that same group from college, who's a pediatrician. And, you know, he'll send me a text message, hey, can we chat? And then we get on the phone and, you know, for five minutes, we're talking about family and life and everything that's going on. And then we transition to talk about a journal article that just came out where we're talking about, um, you know, Medicaid expansion and what's happening in Texas uh, compared to what's happening in Massachusetts and the advice that he could potentially give to the organization he's working with um, on how to better improve care for vulnerable populations. And that's the great experience that I'm talking about of having that that group of friends, yeah. um, because those are those are conversations that you know, I, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, well, that's what we're going to be talking about, <laughs> I would have said absolutely not. But that's what we do now, right? And so I have my friends from college, and then I also have a group of friends from med school that lifelong friends, very similar situation. Transitioning to a different group of friends, I went from going from an HBCU uh, where I was, you know, one of many, you know. Uh, students, black students on campus to a medical school where um, I was one of 16 in a class of 160, right? And so you go from being in a space where everybody looks like you uh, and has similar background and cultural experiences. And then you go to a place where you are the definition of minority, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you're one of 16 in a class of 160, right? So you talk about you are 10% of the diversity, you are that 10% that is considered diversity at that institution. Um, but I still had, you know, that that made us even closer, right? Because we, you know, we all we got, so we had to support each other. Um, and uh, being in that environment was very different. But I, one of my good friends from, from med school, he was a year above me. Um, but uh, we, you know, spend holidays together where his family will come up and visit mine or my family will go visit his. Uh, and uh, we talk regularly, whether it's, you know, shooting the breeze about, you know, again, life things or talking about real life issues about what's happening from a career perspective and sort of how do we make the next move to transition to a better space so that we could be more academically productive or clinically productive. And again, it's those invaluable conversations that you have over those relationships that are built um, at those early stages of, of, of our, um, our development in this path. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So you mentioned um, the transition from HBCU to a PWI um, mm -hmm. and what that was like. So I was to, I think SNMA has been vital to my um, progression in medical school yep. and having that community and network of friends to just support in this process. So talk about a little bit about how, how you were supported in medical school. So when you think about that transition from an HBCU to an environment where, like you said, you are the minority, 
how did you manage that? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And again, it goes back to having those pillars in the community and people that are there to support you. And I think one of the things that made this truly successful is um, my, uh, uh, my mentors in this space. Um, and so just to give you a little bit more background about my transition and growth. So I started off at Prairie View A&M and I did a program called MMEP, which is Minority Medical Education Program. It's had a bunch of name changes. It was then Summer Medical Education Program. Um, and then summer medical dental education program, and now it's summer health professions education program. So it's had some different iterations. Um, but I did that program at the school where I went uh, during my, in between my first and uh, second year of college. And that's ultimately where I chose to go to medical school. Uh, and part of the reason why I chose it was one, because I had some familiarity with the campus and I knew a little bit more about the education system that they had. And secondly, I knew um, that there were some individuals that were going to be there to support and mentor me. So um, one of the people that I met during that program was, but it was a woman named Marsha Kelly Sutton that was over for the Office for Diversity. Uh, it was Office for Most Public Affairs at that time, but she was the one who was responsible for that office. And I knew that if I went to that medical school that I would have at least one person in my corner. Um, I also knew a couple of the med students that were going to be there, uh, and that helped me to feel like I was going to have some sort of community by starting off medical school there. Um, but to be honest with you, it was a hell of a transition uh, and it wasn't smooth uh, and it was tough because uh, I went to medical school in Alabama, um, deep south, and uh, the school was commissioned by George Wallace and for the history bus out there. No, George Wallace was the one who stood in the doorway uh, and told the black students at the University of Alabama that they couldn't come on uh, into this building. So you think about the racial divide that was there going from an HBCU that was founded to provide education uh, for the freed slaves, you know, to going to an institution that didn't want people who look like me in that institution yeah. and being a minority. So that's a, a crazy mind flip. But it was it was through good mentorship and support that I was able to have success there. Um, so I had Marsha Kelly Sutton. Uh, and then I also had other mentors like Willie Guilford, who was an emergency medicine doctor, who was a good support for me. Um, I had other doctors who were there to support me in addition to my classmates. Um, and so it was people who were my mentors who helped me to grow and helped me to succeed in medical school. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Um, so at the top of the episode, you mentioned the, all of the roles that you served in. So let's talk about your work. Um, I, I had the fortune of meeting you last year when I came to um, Harvard's uh, residency showcase sponsored by the Office of Diversity, uh, Inclusion and Community Partnerships. And let me tell you, that weekend, so it was the start of my second year, and um, you know, second year is a little bit um, stressful, so to speak. And I left there feeling so like invigorated, like excited about the possibility of what could happen, and whether that possibility be Harvard or somewhere else. I was just like I was fired up leaving that weekend and I was so grateful that people. I will also say this: I was kind of surprised at how open and welcoming everyone was and willing to answer questions. Um, so yeah, that weekend just left me absolutely just fired up. And so in one of your roles, you serve as the assistant dean um, for the Office of Diversity, Inclusion and Community Partnerships at Harvard Medical School. So talk about your work in that role and um, what, it all, what it entails. Great, and that's really good to hear the positive feedback for the program um, that you know I created. I think it's really important for us to 
have these spaces where we can feel comfortable in places that we don't traditionally think that we would be comfortable. Um, and again, as a quick aside, when I started at, at Harvard, I didn't think that I would fit, right? Uh, because I thought everybody at Harvard would wear bow ties and had elbow patches and mm -hmm. smoked out of pipes. You know, you get these visions of what mm -hmm. the ivory tower looks like. And then you get there and you're like, oh, it's actually not that bad. Um, and so it was really important for me um, to create spaces like that so other students um, could have those misconceptions removed, right? And then they can have a better understanding of what it was like to be in that environment. So. Uh, thank you for the positive feedback um, for the, the showcase. Um, so that's one of the things that I do is I do work on workforce diversity, specifically trying to help students uh, underrepresented in medicine to pursue careers at HMS for their training. Um, my goal is to get people in from um, at the residency level, at the fellow level, or at the junior faculty level knowing that if you can get somebody early in their career they're likely to stay on and take advantage of the resources and opportunities that are here and so i'm over a program called the visiting clerkship program mm -hmm. um i did the visiting clerkship program which is interesting most people don't know that um, i was a student who came and rotated at um, the residency program that i ended up matching in um, and again very similar to that story i talked about going to uab um for the uh, mmep program i came up and did the bcp program so pipeline programs work mm -hmm. because i came and i did this program and then i ended up matching in this place for residency and it was because i met people who are good mentors and great educators um and i felt comfortable in that environment so i did bcp now i'm over bcp and so each year we bring over you know aside from COVID years, we bring about a, a hundred students to our campus where they come and they do rotations. They get to know the culture of Harvard. They get to see what it's like to be a, um, a, uh, a trainee here um, from the inside out. So not that you're just looking at a website or listening to a webinar or um, doing a conference, but actually rotating in that hospital and getting to see what it's like to be there. Um, and it, I'm very proud to say that since I've taken over the program that we've had growth in the program, but we continue to do well in matching students who come to our program. Um, we do the residency showcase, which you talked about, which is a great way for students who can't come and do an away rotation to actually get to know us and get this um, experience where they get to meet residents and program directors and other faculty members um, so they can find out more about the specialty that they're choosing, but then also think more about, um, you know, the Harvard as a place to train and develop and cultivate those mentorship relationships. Um, and then I'm also, it's something else that I'm really proud of is I'm over this equity and social justice lecture series. And it's something that we've been doing for the better part of five years now. And it's where we create spaces to have conversations around health equity and around social justice issues that don't fit cleanly into medical education, either at the graduate medical education level or the undergraduate medical education level. And I would challenge you to think about how many conversations you've had about um, education and achievement gap um, experiences of, of in the K through 12 space uh, in your medical school. How many times have you heard someone talk about police violence? Not just because of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and all the many others who've been killed more recently, but five years ago when we first had our talk. Uh, how many of you uh, have had conversations around um, caring for patients who are disabled? Uh, you know, And so we created this space to have these conversations that don't fit cleanly into medical education because you know, they're trying to teach you to meet you know, core competencies and meet learning objectives, but how do you be in a space where you can have a reactionary conversation to what's happening in society and in, tie that to medicine. And so we, we do this with the equity and social justice lecture series. And obviously for the past you know five months, we've been focused on COVID. 
um, because of all the health disparities that are existing there. But we put on a slew of webinars, just having conversations about COVID and the health disparities, what's happening to our Native American communities, our Latinx communities, mm -hmm. our Black communities, what's happening to um, students, and what's also happening to the to doctors as and, and other healthcare professionals uh, from a stress and anxiety level and the mental tax and the burden that's happening during the disease, uh, during this pandemic. And so we have this space in our equity and social justice lecture series that I'm immensely proud of because it's conversations that need to happen, but don't necessarily fit into a grand rounds talk, or they don't necessarily fit into your pathophys lecture on cardiovascular health. But there's some health disparities that are existing, some social justice issues that need to be addressed, and we don't talk about that in medicine. And so we've been doing that for uh, the better part of five years now. We're planning our next set of lectures coming up. Um, obviously, a lot of these are gonna be virtual. We've taken advantage of this virtual Zoom platform Mm -hmm. so that we can have a more inclusive audience and we're not just focused on uh, what's happening directly here in Boston and Harvard, but we can also have this sort of national perspective with these conversations. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And one of the things in our campus um, <clears throat> that, we, that has been implemented is this cultural competency program where um, we similarly, we are having these conversations about um, whether it be homelessness, whether it be um, effect of certain um, healthcare disparities on, like you said, Native American populations, or um, talking about, you know, uh, opportunities for members of the LGBTQIA plus community. And so all these things. So I want to ask you what you think, just like you've implemented this at Harvard, how do you, how does another institution start? Like where, where, where do they start to build that kind of program or just start having those conversations? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is a lot of these conversations, um, we shy away from them because we don't think we have expertise or knowledge uh, in these spaces. And the reality is there are plenty of people, especially in this way in two, 2020 with us being able to have so many different ways to communicate. There's experts that are um, abound um, if you look at the journal pieces that are out there. And so a lot of this is sort of like um, reaching out to people that you know that are in these spaces, using your networks and identifying the speakers to come in. And whether it's talking to a group of students as part of your SNMA chapter, LMSA chapter, or bringing them in for something more formal through a grand rounds discussion at an institution. Um, it's, it just takes people who are committed to education and people who are committed to equity to come together mm -hmm. and thinking about how can we have these conversations in a more meaningful and impactful way. And for us, you know, we, obviously we um, have some additional resources and we have a lot of experts here. Um, but we recognize that not all the experts live here at Harvard and we have experts who are in other spaces. And so the fact that now we're doing these things virtual, we can have experts coming from, you know, all the way over in California and in the Midwest and still talking to our audience here in Boston and across the country that are joining us virtually. Um, but the biggest thing is just start having these conversations um, and you start on the topics that you're most passionate about, find out what the community needs are, think about what the hospital um, is doing well or not doing well in and how do you have those conversations and sometimes they're going to be uncomfortable conversations when you're talking about you know violence you know uh, police violence or community violence these are conversations that can be really touching it can be really emotional and really jarring for some individuals but how do you have that conversation we had a conversation around veterans health and we had uh, a speaker who was a medical student and he told his experience 
and you can see the trauma that he lived and the trauma that he was still experiencing through the form of PTSD. Um, but he shared his story. And I think sharing these stories and then backing him, backing these stories up with data is really important and impactful. But it's not just telling the stories and backing them up with data. It's next is making the institutional change that is needed so that patients who are coming from those disadvantaged, those vulnerable, those marginalized backgrounds and communities actually get better care and support. And so what do you do to take it from a learning and sort of, we had this great experience to how does this improve care for patients? And that's ultimately what the goal is, is yeah. taking this from conceptual and hearing stories and, and being in a lecture to being in the emergency department where I am and thinking about trauma-informed care, being in the, um, um, in, in the PCP office and thinking about food insecurity, being in uh, the operating room and thinking about, well, we're doing this amputation on this person for diabetes, but what were the upstream impact of diabetes and um, sort of the, the, the social determinants of health that led to this person being in this condition? And so how do we take it from you know, the classroom into the practice. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm going to, um, and so you mentioned, um, a lot of things there and I want to ask also, so thinking about current events, um, you know, switching and thinking about medical students, a lot of us are experiencing everything that's happening. Like I'm sure you are too, um, that's going on. We're recording this Three, day, three or four days now after another um, police-involved shooting with Jacob Blake. And so how does a medical student in a midst, we talked about how institutions move from this um, conversation of learning piece to now structural change. How does a medical student um, in the capacity that we're in channel everything that we're feeling um, into particularly black medical students into change or into action, so to speak? You know, that's a good question. I think the real question is how, do, where is your passion? Um, and what, um, what pressure points can you apply to the spaces that you're in? And for a lot of medical students, one of the things that uh, you all can do that we can do is apply pressure to our institutions, right? So we're in this domain of medicine and um, within medicine, we recognize that um, health inequities exist uh, because of structural racism, institutional racism, interpersonal racism, um, unconscious bias, microaggressions, you name the litany of um, spaces where health disparities exist. And then you also think about the equity and workforce diversity issues that we're experiencing um, in medicine because of bias, because of um, uh, uh, approaches to the admissions process of the medical schools or the residency programs, whatever it may be. There's so many layers and it's really complex, but it all goes back to those isms and those, those that, that bias and racism uh, that has uh, sort of been entrenched in the fabric of our, of our country uh, since its conception and even before, uh, before that. Um, but you all now have power, right? And you all have leverage points within your institutions. And so how do you be proactive and say, medical school, you need to do better. Here are the things that we are struggling. Here are the issues that we have concerns about. Um, how will you be addressing these? So I've seen medical students doing everything from joining committees um, at their institutions to fix things internally, um, to working within their existing structures that they have through their uh, affinity groups, uh, to be proactive and creating spaces for conversations. Um, 
to publicize, uh, publicizing these issues in the forms of um, articles and manuscripts and being academically productive in the traditional ways that we think of. Uh, and if you look, there's a lot of great work that's coming out from medical students talking about what their institution should be doing uh, or um, the work that they're doing to promote health and wellness in their communities and promote diversity and inclusion at their institutions. Um, and so I challenge students to think about what they're good at, uh, to think about whether it's community organizing or whether it is you know, scholarly work because they're excellent writers or because they're passionate leaders and they know how to make, you know, help that make an organization move the needle. Um, and so I challenge students to think about what they're good at, uh, where their passions are, and how they can apply pressure to those spaces uh, that they know that they have um, uh, sort of some security to do so. But honestly, to be, you know, to, if you think about this, doing this from a student's perspective is historically been uh, potentially fraught uh, with uh, negative energy coming back to you, right? Because when you stand up and you speak out as a student, well, now you're labeled as a troublemaker, you're problematic, you're not, you know, marching to the party line. Um, and that could result in negative evaluations and things like that. And so I think rightfully so, students need to think about that and how it may impact their careers. But we can't just sit on the sidelines, all right? You got the NBA players boycotting. I mean, they sat out games. People lost money because of that. And they were able to, they're able to draw attention to these issues because they were willing to take a risk. And so some of us have to take a risk. And I challenge people who are like me, who have a little bit more job security because we got fancy titles and we've already been through the training process, um, that we can't just sort of rest on our laurels. We also have to be out there on the front line supporting students. But, you know, doing these die-ins and all these other things that students are doing is really a great way for students to show that they're proactive in these spaces. Yeah, that's so good. I'm glad you mentioned that the kind of uh, fear of, you know, negative feedback, like negative pushback when as a student, when you do um, mention something or, um, yeah, it's that it, that's all it's always plain, like find that fine line of I am a student, I'm a black student, or I'm a, I'm a minority student, and I'm already kind of on the outskirts. And now, if I say something, this is going to really push, this is going to really draw attention to me. And it's a, it's a little fearful. Um, but I also accept the charge to say, we can't be just silent. We can't just sit by and let things go. So um, yeah, that is, that's, that's helpful for me too, because back in, um, what's this earlier this year, March, April, March, April, um, after Breonna Taylor, and actually, let me backtrack, even after Ahmaud Aubrey, because I'm from, I'm from Georgia and Ahmaud Aubrey, that was literally not far from where, I'm, where I live. I, we, we go down there, or we did when I was in high school for football gotcha. games, basketball games all the time. So that really hit close to home for me. Mm-hmm. And then right after that, Breonna Taylor. And then right after that, George Floyd it was like, what do I do? You know, I feel, I kind of feel helpless. I feel like I can't do anything and then you have that battle of well i also have to do this school thing and then i have to make sure that i do well on boards it was board season and then i have to now i you know i want to do but then there's a fear of what happens if i say this um and we had on our campus there was one of the doctors who graduated from our school um organized the white coats for black lives um like moment of silence on you know shortly after the george floyd murder and we were having conversation in our group me like, do we wear our white coats? Is that, you know, are we going to have some kind of bite back on that? And so I, I appreciate you mentioning that, but also um, that we can be active. We can, and we essentially have to be. 
Um, we can be active though in a way that that exercises our strengths yep. and what we're what we're passionate 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 about and good at. So yeah. yeah. But I mean, but I mean, look at you. You have this platform now, right? You have your podcast, um, and you're we're having this discussion. And yeah. for your listeners um, to your podcast, now this is going to be a part of their thought, right? And so you are using your platform to have these conversations. So kudos to you for. Um, creating a space for these conversations to happen as well yeah yeah thank you and and what i realized is um like activism varies it's not a yep. one lane thing you yep. know perhaps like you mentioned perhaps someone is writing the papers yep. perhaps someone is marching perhaps someone is organizing over here um yep. and or it is a podcast platform so it varies it's not monolithic yep. um so yeah I, yep. I, I and saw. we just we and we all have strength right we all have um and we all have passions and how do you you know, there's people, you know, you, you can be an artist and be in this space. There's people who are great at the, you know, the political science aspect of this and the lobbying and the advocacy. There's people who, you know, do this because, you know, you think about um, doctors that are involved in the civil rights movement, right? You know, yeah. they're taking care of those individuals who are being assaulted by the police, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they were out there marching as well, but then they are also behind the scenes in those triage tents and caring for those individuals. So just, we are, we all have, um, we all have a talents and if this is something that matters to you take your talents and use it in the best way possible yeah that's so good that's so good thank you for that you speaking to me too thank you for that um <laughs> so let's talk about you know we're in this unique situation now a lot of a lot of shifted in medical education and um education in general but all you know from our perspective medical education now and this um residency cycle all those things and you mentioned that Harvard has taken advantage of, and many schools have taken advantage of this uh, virtual opportunity to engage with people more broadly. Yep. And yep. so for those students who are in a few short weeks going to submit that ERAS application, mm-hmm. how do you like determine if a program is for you if you are, if it's virtual, so you don't have that opportunity to go to like do a visiting opportunity, you know, it's, you're doing everything via Zoom. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's a great question. and. You know, as we're prepping for our next residency showcase, even though it's going to be virtual, um, we're going to try and address that question as well. And I think the reality is you have to be proactive in this space. You have to look at the institution and see, um, and you have to go beyond the websites, right? And you have to certainly go beyond those. Um, I won't call anybody out, but there's a couple um, platforms and chat rooms that are out there that students and physicians often go to for sources of information that are uh can potentially be a source of misinformation. Mm-hmm. So just be cautious of where you get your information, but reaching out directly to individuals, uh, reaching out to those institutions. Program directors this year have been amazingly more flexible and open to students and email replying to those emails because they recognize without a way rotation, students aren't able to come on campus. They recognize that you know these you know the in-person residency showcase isn't going to be a part of our um, uh, the work that we're doing uh, this year. They recognize that interviews are going to be virtual and you won't be able to tour the city and have a resident night out. Um, so the onus is on the programs to be open. And then it's also um, a responsibility of the students to be engaging and finding out those information and asking those deeper questions. Look at people who are a year above you who match, see where they ended up, especially if they went to your school or you know them from you know connections. I mean, the world of 
you know, underrepresented in medicine community, right? The students underrepresented in medicine is relatively small, right? Um, so if you know somebody because you work with them through the SNMA and now they're at a, they may not be at the institution that you're interested in, but they may be in the specialty that you're interested in. Get some feedback from them. Find out about the places that they applied to. What were their pros and cons? You know, if you know somebody who's at the institution that you want to go to, but maybe not in the specialty that you want to go into, reach out to them. Find out more about the city and the and the hospital and what the culture is like there. Um, but you have to be proactive, reaching out, getting information, um, and then take advantage of those these opportunities um, because you learn a lot about um, a program based on how much effort they're actually putting forward towards um, talking to students, not just students of color, but just all students. And if they're not engaging students in this space, and that may be a red flag for you. Um, but, and then if they specifically are doing work for, for the diversity inclusion aspect of it, um, you, we all have that, that radar, that BS radar that goes off when you're like, oh, Oh, y'all are y'all are capping. This isn't real. Um, and so, <laughs> yep. right. And so, like, how do you how do you make sure that people? Uh, the only way you do that is by getting to know these 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 places. Mm -hmm. And my my piece of advice to all the men students that are out there who are going to be applying to this year is: don't go crazy with your application numbers. Think yeah. realistically about the strength of your application, and you can determine what you value as strength, whether it is your performance in your sub-I, your letters of recommendation, your performance on step one, your overall application, if you're looking at it from a holistic perspective. And you think about how competitive you are in your conversations with your mentors and your advisors and your deans at your institutions, and then apply to places that you truly wanna to go to. So I did emergency medicine, and I don't wanna state my age, but I can tell you this, when I applied, I didn't apply to nearly as many programs as people are applying to now. And my concern is that this year people are going to over apply. Yeah. And if you're applying to 50, 60, 70 programs in a specialty where historically you applied to 20 or 30, do you really think there are 50 or 60, 70 places that you would actually be happy at if you were selected there for residency? Mm -hmm. Or do you really need to keep it in that 20, 30 range because you know that these are the places that offer the resources and the support in the community that you're interested in? So yeah. I would say just be cautious to students and don't over apply. Um, because it's not worth the finances, uh, wasting the money on programs. And it's certainly not waste, uh, worth um, just just putting out a list of, uh, you know, doing this catch-all spread and seeing what you catch, especially if you know you're not going to be happy, whether it's from a geographical location or a teaching ideology or whether it is from a patient population that they're serving. Um, if you're not going to be happy, then you shouldn't be applying there. Yeah, that's really good advice. Even now, I've so I've been on... Um several of these things, even though I'm a third year, I've been on quite a bit of these uh, virtual, um, I guess, you know, opportunities with different programs and schools. And mm -hmm. I certainly appreciate that. Like it's, I know that some, some students that I know had that same concern. Like if, if I'm applying to, you know, now it's, I don't have, you don't have to travel to go to so many yep. places. So you don't have that expense yep. of traveling, but you can now apply to so many programs. Um, and what does that, what does that look like? And, and, yep. Just the process so yeah i certainly appreciate appreciate that advice um so I, I want to we mentioned this we mentioned this when we talked about your transition from um you know going into harvard for residency and what your what you thought harvard looked like all buttoned up and bow ties and all that kind of stuff and so to the student who thinks um that harvard or any school is beyond reach you know harvard has this, this prestige and many schools have this yep. prestige and this elusiveness so to speak what advice do you give them yeah. 
Um, so I would say that number one, um, just in particular about HMS and my experiences here, um, I think that being here has been very good for my career. I think it's been a very supportive place. Um, but I also felt like once I got here and I realized that these people were humans and they had their flaws and they had their strengths uh, and they had their insecurities. Um, but I, I, I fit here. I belonged here and I can do good work here. Uh, I also recognize that being at um, HMS has provided me a platform that may go a little bit further than if I were at other institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've also built my own um, platform and so that I can uh, sort of stand up um, separate from HMS uh, in the work that I do. Um, but just thinking about this a little bit more, um, you know, this is, um, this is when it gets all down to it, it's a teaching hospital and their job here is to make sure that you as a learner, um, as a, as a trainee, um, come here and sort of this, um, starting to define yourself in the specialty and you need to leave here in three to seven years as a competent, capable physician in whatever specialty that you go into. And uh, they do a really good job of teaching here. And if you're looking for a high quality education and you think that this is a place where you would be comfortable and you would grow and mature, um, then this is the place for you. Um, but you got to think about, you know, you and where you're going to be happy. Uh, and that's ultimately what it boils down to is, will you be happy, competent, capable, caring physician um, at the end of your, at the end of your training here? Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. A quick break to remind you of the sponsor for this episode, Idaltu Counseling and Consulting. Idaltu is growing tremendously and proud to highlight the efforts and strengths of his multi-skilled consulting team. Idaltu recently welcomed Corey Hamilton Biagas, a Washington, D.C.-based equity and culturally responsive teaching expert with 15 years of experience in educational equity research teacher education training, and reforming school districts nationally. Corey specializes in anti-bias and anti-racist instructional design in the K-12 settings. Chianti Blackman, a higher ed administrator with an expertise in inclusive leadership, diversity, strategic planning, allyship to accomplice work, and program design. Chianti brings 15 years of leadership to the team and is skillful in merging the principles of mental healing and justice together. And lastly, Kimberly Humphrey, a federal and state legislative affairs expert with over a decade of experience. She's an attorney by trade and an activist at heart. Kimberly is committed to unlocking opportunity in workplaces and public policy spaces, in addition to educational policy reform. So if your organization or organization that you know of is in need of assistance in building a more equitable and diverse environment, Lean on the expertise about Daltu Counseling and Consulting. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Alden Landry. Good deal, good deal. All right, so let's talk, let's do some fun questions. Yeah. All right, so tell me um, what music is in heavy rotation for you right now? Again, you're gonna make me show my age. Um, <laughs> what's in heavy rotation? So um, honestly, I listen to um, a lot of Kendrick Lamar, a lot of J. Cole, um, uh, I listened to, uh, I like the new Nas album that he just dropped. I thought that was pretty dope. Um, but I'm old school and I'm also from Texas. Um, and there was a controversy that came out recently about like this, uh, slowed and re reverbed yeah, uh, versus screwed that. and chopped. And I was like, oh, absolutely not. And that got me going back and feeling nostalgic in my glory days. So I had to pull out some great tapes and, uh, and bang some screw. 
Um, yeah. but I am, I am, a, uh, you know, I grew up, you know, listening to, to, to 90s rap. So, um, you know, my man is Pac, you know, I think he is my goat. Uh, so, you know, that's what I listen to. I got a couple get hype songs that I listen to before work or a couple mm -hmm. of, uh, calm down songs or get hype songs after work that, uh, yeah. so for Pac that are in heavy rotation. So, um, you know, that's my music selection. Um, but I also got kids. And so, you know, I got my Disney, uh, uh, playlist going where yeah. we, we, we sing uh you know whatever whatever song came out from you know trolls movie or frozen mm -hmm. 2 so <laughs> i got that on rotation too good deal good deal all right so last question uh when it's all said and done what do you want your legacy to be um what do i want my legacy to be i don't necessarily you know what uh, so in football they always talk about the um like the coaching trees right so you get a head coach and then he has all of his like assistant coaches and then where they go on to do and the work that they go on to do and them become becoming head coaches. Um, and so I want to have my legacy to be, I was a good mentor that cultivated people who are able to go on and do great work. Um, one of my favorite sayings is the finger that points to the moon is not the moon. Um, and if you think about that, what is that saying? Well, the moon is the big shiny object in the sky. That's where we all look up to at night. That's where we get our light from. Um, and I don't need to be the moon, but I want to be the people, the, the person, I want to be the person who points people to the moon and said, there's your light. Good. Um, and so, um, my job is to find as many talented people, uh, and put them in a position to succeed. Uh, and my legacy will be their legacy. Yeah, that's good. That's so good. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Landry. This has been great. I appreciate you. Um, no, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for your yes. Thank you for this great conversation. Perfect. Well, yeah. Um, on a, as an aside, again, if you want to come back and talk talk it up, we could do a part two. Uh, I don't know yeah. how many part twos you do, um, but I'm happy to chat with you and your audience again in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And before we go out, to I'll tell you some advice that you gave me at the showcase that I um, that I still remember. I asked you how receptive, like. Um, school Harvard in, in particular will be accepting of a DO student and you said to me come and show them and I thought there we go that's it so thank you Seriously? I think about that all the time come and show them um, so yeah, yeah. I, even, on my, even on my rotations I show up and I do work and they can't, can't deny that I'm you know I, I work hard so yeah yeah thank you for well, that I'm, gl I'm glad I was able to get you know advi my advice is free so you uh you know, you, you paid for it, which you, uh, you know, for, you know, you paid a lot for it, but you know, you can take it as much as you, uh, as you want, or you can throw it away. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I said something that was meaningful to you. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate you.